Sister Dorothy Stang was already dead, lying face first in the red mud, but Rifron couldn't stop. As his friend Clodoaldo looked on, he emptied his 38 clip, firing five more bullets into the old nun's back. It wasn't spite that made him do it, it was panic. He already regretted what he'd done. No one deserved to die like that, shot in the back, left to lie in the road. But there was no time for guilt. The sister's death would cause an uproar. Clodo Aldo pulled Rifron away and ran deep into the rainforest where they could wait out the coming frenzy. Sister Dorothy died wearing a simple white cotton t-shirt and shorts, stained red by both the soil and her blood. Her Bible laid open beside her corpse. After more than 40 years of fearlessly facing down the region's most menacing criminals, the Angel of the Amazon had fallen. Welcome to Assassinations on the ParCast Network. Every Monday, we examine the famous assassins of history and the men and women who were assassinated. I'm your host, Bill Thomas. And I'm your host, Kate Leonard. This is our second episode examining the murder of Sister Dorothy Stang and its aftermath. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. We also now have merch. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. Sister Dorothy Stang spent more than four decades fighting for Brazil's landless farmers and the fragile Amazonian ecosystem. Although she was beloved by many, her activism put her on a collision course with the country's richest land barons, who stopped at nothing to protect their wealth. Dorothy knew her life might end at any moment. She told her friends and family that she was prepared to pay the ultimate price for her activism. She only hoped that if she had to die, her death would be a catalyst for change. On the morning of February 12, 2005, a nun, Nelda, and a local farmer's son, Geraldo, watched as Dorothy was gunned down just outside the farmhouse where she was staying. It was hard to leave their friend lying there in the mud, but Nelda and Geraldo knew they couldn't move the body without hampering the coming investigation. It might even put Nelda and Geraldo in danger if the gunmen were still watching. They fled to call for help. By the time police arrived many hours later, Dorothy's face was bloated from laying in her own blood all day. One fellow sister said she was only able to recognize Dorothy by her shoes. Police retrieved Dorothy's body and drove her about 30 miles to the nearest city, Anapu. Meanwhile, word spread across Para that Sister Dorothy was dead. Wherever Dorothy's body went, from that night on, it was accompanied by hordes of mourners, singing and chanting in celebration of her life. The next morning, on Sunday, February 13th, Sister Dorothy was flown more than 400 miles to Belém, the capital of Para State. There, she underwent an autopsy. A medical examiner removed six bullets from her body. 
Afterwards, Dorothy's remains were placed into a casket and loaded into a hearse. A police vehicle led the procession, while local mourners surrounded the hearse on foot. At 11 p.m., Dorothy's body arrived at the parish church of Santa Maria Goretti in Belém. The sisters of Notre Dame de Namur were gathered there to receive their fellow sister with applause. The nearest Catholic bishop, Bishop Flavio Giovanale of Abea Tetuba, traveled through the night to reach Sister Dorothy. He performed a funeral mass, the first of three that day, at four o'clock in the morning, then spoke to the thousands of mourners gathered outside. Bishop Flavio shared Sister Dorothy's passion for social justice. He dedicated himself to battling child prostitution, drug abuse, and police corruption, and he'd already interfered in the affairs of some of the most powerful criminals in the Amazon. As he performed Dorothy's Mass, Flavio knew he was placing a target on his own head. If even the beloved sister Dorothy could be killed, nobody in Para was safe from the wealthy landowners, certainly not Flavio a relatively unknown clergyman without Dorothy's powerful friends in the Brazilian government. But he, like all Catholic activists in Brazil, owed Dorothy a great debt of gratitude. Early in the morning of February 14th, Dorothy's casket, adorned with the Brazilian flag, arrived at the airport in Altamira, the seat of the diocese in Para. The church Sister Dorothy served in life would, in return, serve her in death. Another funeral mass was performed, and from there, Dorothy's body was placed on a truck and driven the 85 miles back to Anapu. Dorothy had told her fellow sisters she wanted to be buried in Anapu, in the forest where she'd spent the final years of her life. When the truck arrived in Anapu, the wide red dirt roads gave way to footpaths and rickety wooden bridges. Taking the casket on their shoulders, the people of Anapu carried Dorothy two and a half miles to the site in the forest where she was to be buried. Mourners streamed out of their houses and into the streets, carrying hand-painted signs and candles. The crowd grew and grew. More than 2,000 people, nearly a third of Anapu's population, joined the funeral procession. The same red dirt that stained Dorothy's body as she lay dead in Esperanza now covered the feet and legs of her thousands of mourners. Many of the poor farmers walked the entire two and a half miles barefoot. At the front of the funeral procession, a huge banner read, Dorothy Vive, or Dorothy Lives. During the burial mass, the third mass that had been celebrated for Dorothy that day, a peasant farmer stood up and shouted, Sister Dorothy, we are not burying you, we are planting you. In keeping with Sister Dorothy's wishes, her grave was marked only by a simple wooden cross with her name, date of birth, and date of death. One of Dorothy's greatest joys in life was the humble plot of flowers she tended outside her house. Now, her forest grave was covered in bouquets of flowers. Images of the humble grave circulated around the world. Thousands of miles from Anapu, Dorothy's supporters in the global activist community vowed to remember Dorothy by finishing her work. Shortly after Dorothy's funeral, an international coalition of almost 60 non-governmental organizations, including the Worldwide Fund for Nature, 
Greenpeace, and Friends of the Earth sent a letter to President Da Silva demanding that something be done about the violence and deforestation in rural Brazil. The letter read in part, quote, Unless the killing stops, President Luis da Silva will risk making history as the champion of rural violence, illegal occupation of public lands, and illegal logging. Para had the highest murder rate related to land disputes in all of Brazil. These conflicts were equally dangerous to the fragile Amazon ecosystem. Subsistence farmers like the ones Dorothy lived with were willing to learn ecologically friendly methods of raising crops and livestock. Large landowners, on the other hand, clear-cut entire sections of the rainforest to meet the demand for lumber and beef. When Dorothy died, land development, logging, and farming had already destroyed as much as 20% of the Amazon. After Dorothy's assassination, television cameras and microphones descended on Para, a region previously rarely seen on TV. President Da Silva knew the same news outlets covering the hunt for Dorothy's killers would also show the devastation of clear-cutting in the rainforest. Not only would he look culpable for Dorothy's murder, but he'd also look like a weak leader, incapable of protecting his country's most precious assets. So, to bring the lawless Amazon under control, President Da Silva announced two monumental decrees within days of Dorothy's assassination. On February 16th, four days after Sister Dorothy died, President Da Silva's first decree formed a wildlife reserve of 8.15 million acres and a national park spanning 1.1 million acres in the state of Para. On the same day, he announced a moratorium on all new logging permits in the Anapu area. He vowed to support landless farmers like those in the Esperanza settlement in their fight for ownership of their land. Environment Minister Marina Silva said, quote, We can't give in to people committing acts of violence. The government is putting the brakes on in front of the predators. While the world demanded action on Sister Dorothy's policy goals, the people of Esperanza lived in fear. They knew large landowners might use the chaos as an opportunity to murder more settlers and seize their land. In response, within 24 hours of Dorothy's death, Brazilian President Da Silva sent 2,000 troops into the Anapu region to quell any further violence. This effort was unsuccessful. At least three other people in Para were murdered in the five days following Sister Dorothy's assassination. In the days following Dorothy's funeral, helicopters soared over Anapu, carrying more than 100 soldiers from the 51st Jungle Infantry Division. These men were assigned to aid the local police in the search for Dorothy's murderers. Police quickly identified Vitamiro Gonçalves Mura, known as Bida, as the likely architect of Dorothy's killing. Bida claimed ownership of the area where the settlement of Esperanza was located and was believed to have placed a $25,000 bounty on Dorothy's head. Tellingly, after the killing, Bida was nowhere to be found on the land he had so publicly laid claim to. The same public who had turned out in force for Dorothy's funeral procession now grew impatient. Five days after the murder, police had made no progress towards locating and arresting Bida or his hitmen. Bida was a loud and bombastic rancher, a man of extreme wealth. It couldn't be that hard to find him, could it? 
Some of Dorothy's supporters began to whisper that the people responsible for her death had bribed the police and would be allowed to escape into the jungle. Adding fuel to this rumor was the news that police suspected Bita of escaping Para on his private plane. Some wondered if police had only been pretending to hunt Bita in the jungle, knowing all the while that he was already far away. It was a conspiracy theory, but it fit with precedent. After all, Sister Dorothy was betrayed by police on the very day of her murder. Though she was promised protection for a contentious town meeting, her police escort never arrived. On February 17th, local farmers and priests staged protests in Altamira, where the federal and state authorities' regional headquarters were located. Reverend José Amaro López de Souza, one of the local priests, said, It's been five days since Dorothy was killed, and so far nothing. The army's here, but that doesn't mean they'll be able to get around the jungle. If they catch someone, I'll only believe it when I see it. Meanwhile, deep in the Amazon jungle, Dorothy's assassins, Rifron and Clodualdo, crept through the dense undergrowth, always one step ahead of the police. If they could survive in the treacherous forest long enough for the search to die down, the Pistoleros thought perhaps they could escape. As they made their way deeper into the rainforest, Rifron was beginning to feel regret for what he had done. To die face down in the mud like that? It wasn't a death he would wish on his worst enemy, much less a helpless old nun reading aloud from her Bible. Life as a fugitive in the jungle was unrewarding. Rifron missed hearing his mother's voice on the phone. Clodualdo, a big violent man with a scorpion tattooed on his bicep, was a poor substitute for the warmth of hearth and home. Both men knew the rainforest well. They knew exactly how many venomous animals, tropical diseases, and stalking predators lurked in its remote regions, where they would have to remain indefinitely. On land, there were anacondas large enough to eat a man. In the river lurked aggressive caimans and piranhas. Eventually, Rifron, the smaller and more sensitive of the two men, became separated from Clodoaldo. It was Rifron who fired the shots that killed Dorothy. Now he couldn't escape the images replaying over and over in his mind of her last moments. The memory followed him everywhere he went. Despite Bita's $25,000 bounty on Dorothy's life, Rifron had received only the equivalent of $50 for the killing. And now Bita was presumably safe somewhere on his private jet, while Rifron was left to wonder if he might spend the rest of his life living in the jungle like a wild animal. Rifron, alone with his thoughts in the rainforest, felt used. On February 19th, one week after the assassination, police finally caught their first break. Amayer Frejali de Cunha, nicknamed Tato, walked into a police station in Altamira, accompanied by his attorney. Although Tato wasn't suspected of killing Dorothy himself, he was a personal friend of Bida and had publicly threatened Dorothy on the day before her murder. Tato confessed his association with Bida and even admitted that he sheltered the two killers, Rifron and Clodoaldo, on the night of the murder out of sympathy for the two men. But he denied hiring them to kill Sister Dorothy. He insisted that the murder was an impulsive crime in the heat of an argument. Of course, police didn't believe Tato's version of the story for a moment. 
Everyone in Anapu knew that Rifran and Clodu Aldo worked for Tato, who worked for Bida. Police tried to get Tato to implicate Bida or to confess to his own role in ordering the shooting, but he remained tight-lipped. The always selfish Tato believed that by turning himself in before the gunmen were found, he could convince the police of a version of events that mostly exonerated himself. Instead, he threw his hired gunmen to the wolves. Finally, after three and a half hours of interrogation, police arrested Tato and charged him with conspiracy to murder. Tato's arrest seemed to break a dam in the case. Rifron was arrested the next day, on February 20th, about 20 miles from the site of the crime. The following day, Clodoaldo was found and taken into custody as well. This left all of the minor players in the case behind bars. But where was Bita? Would he really get to go free after using two lowly gunmen to do his dirty work? Coming up, we'll follow the hunt for Dorothy's real killer, the land baron who'd ordered her assassination. Now, back to the story. The case of Dorothy Stang's murder seemed like a microcosm of everything that was wrong with the Brazilian legal system. The lower-class hitmen, Rifron and Clodoaldo, faced consequences, while Bida, the rich man who directed their actions, had escaped justice. Bida was responsible in more ways than one. If Bida hadn't sold Tato land that he didn't truly own, there would have been no conflict between Tato and Dorothy in the first place. The local people were pleased to see the gunmen behind bars, but they wanted to see the duplicitous landowner brought to justice, not just his minions. But to do that, police would have to build an airtight case against an international oligarch who could afford the best defense attorneys in Brazil. And for now, the best help they had in that effort came from Rifron and Clodoaldo themselves. Both men agreed to confess to their crimes and to implicate both Tato and Bida for hiring them. As part of their confession, Rifron and Clodoaldo were ordered to reenact the crime so that the authorities might see exactly what happened to Dorothy. The killers were brought to the scene of the crime a few days after their arrest. Police carefully removed Rifron's handcuffs and gave him a mock gun. At the urging of police, Rifron played out the entire murder, shot for shot. A policewoman playing the role of Dorothy fell forward onto the ground just like Dorothy had. Rifron, with tears welling in his eyes, explained that his very first bullet had struck Dorothy in the head and killed her. A crowd gathered to watch the reenactment. Rifron could feel their anger. He was one of the most hated men in Brazil now, if not the world. He stood over the prone policewoman and confessed to how he had fired five more bullets into Sister Dorothy's back as she lay dead. As the scene progressed, Rifron was overcome with guilt. He told onlookers that he didn't want any of this. He told them his life would never be the same. But there was no sympathy to be found from the settlers of Esperanza, who knew Rifron as just another member of Bida's private army. Now that Rifron and Clodoaldo were cooperating fully with police, Tato also changed his story. He decided to admit to his role in ordering the murder. In a deposition shortly after Clodoaldo's arrest, Tato claimed Bida offered him 50,000 reais, the equivalent of 13,000 U.S. dollars, to kill the nun. 
He confessed that after arguing with Sister Dorothy, he passed the buck, both literally and figuratively, to Rifron and Clodoaldo. Rifron continued to insist that he had only received $50, while Tato kept the rest of the $13,000 he'd received from Bida. For the next month, the case stalled. Prosecutors prepared their case against Tato, Clodoaldo, and Rifron, but the big fish Bida remained missing. Despite President da Silva's big proclamations, it looked like Brazil would continue to be a place with two sets of laws, one for the vast majority of the people and the other for the wealthy few like Bida. At last, after weeks on the run, on March 26th, Bida finally gave himself up to the police. When asked about being a conspirator in the murder, Bida said, quote, There's nothing to support that. I've got nothing to do with this. I was on my ranch. Everything I say has proof, but I'd like to see their proof. Bida's wife publicly called Sister Dorothy an invader. She insisted that, in private, Sister Dorothy was nothing like her public, gentle image. This was a common thread among the wealthy landowners in opposition to the sisters' work. They often claimed she armed the poor farmers and encouraged them to kill landowners. For his defense, Bida hired Americo Leal, a lawyer whose main clientele were large landowners. A Brazilian Johnny Cochran figure, he was prone to dramatic pronouncements and big swings of legal strategy. He insisted that his client was innocent, going so far as to claim that Dorothy was an agent of the U.S. government sent to start an uprising in the Amazon. Convincing a Brazilian court that the woman of the year, an elderly nun, was a secret agent would be difficult, but Americo was willing to try anything. In fact, he even offered to represent the other alleged conspirators, all on Bida's dime. Surprised, Rifron and Clodoaldo accepted Bida's seemingly generous offer to pay for their legal defense. They began meeting regularly with Americo. Of course, despite turning himself in, Bida had a few more tricks up his sleeve. He explained that the disputed land was originally purchased from another wealthy rancher, Regivaldo Pereira Galvo, known as Torado. This meant Regivaldo might actually be responsible for starting the conflict that led to Dorothy's death. A week later, Brazilian authorities arrested Regivaldo and accused him of providing half of the money promised to kill Dorothy. Torado, which meant sleazy in Portuguese, was despised in the region, and he was rumored to have said once that there would be no peace in Anapu until Sister Dorothy was dealt with. But nobody had expected to see him arrested in connection with Dorothy's murder. As police took him into custody, he publicly called the landless peasants lazy, saying they didn't want to work and were living off men like himself. As part of Bita's defense, he blamed Regivaldo for selling him the contested land in Para using a falsified land contract. If Regivaldo knew that this land had already been parceled out for homesteading, there was no excuse for selling it to a fellow rancher. This left Bita in the unusual position of working to prove that his title to his own land was fake, only weeks after using those same documents as justification for violently evicting poor settlers. 
Dorothy herself used to rail about these falsified land ownership contracts. In fact, in her final argument with Tato, she had calmly shown him on a map exactly which portions of the land Tato considered his were dedicated to resettlement. She even explained to Tato that he had probably been misled by false documents. But instead of believing her, Tato had killed her. Now Dorothy was dead, Tato was in jail, and none of them, not Bita, not Rajivaldo, and not Tato, was free to live on the contested land. And if any of the others were to go free by throwing Rajivaldo under the bus, they would have to prove that they didn't legally own the land on which Esperanza was built. This was a good thing for the settlers of Esperanza, who were safe for the moment. But unless the killers were found guilty in a court of law, it wouldn't last. Despite witnesses, confessions, and the murder weapon in hand, there was a very good chance any or all of the four men could go free. Rejavaldo and Bida could bribe the jury, the judge, or both. They might be able to arrange for false evidence to be produced. Corrupt policemen might lie for them. Anything was possible with men as powerful as these on trial. As preparations for the trial commenced, Bida and Rejavaldo changed their allegiances. Where once the two wealthy men had blamed each other for the killing, they now conspired to place the blame for Dorothy's killing entirely on Rifron and Clodoaldo. The gunmen could easily be discredited and sabotaged by their lawyer, Americo, who they shared with Bida. And indeed, in pretrial proceedings, Americo threw his two poorer clients under the bus. He argued that the two gunmen had shot Dorothy over an argument, nothing more. If he could convince a judge and jury of this, Bida and Rejavaldo would walk free. But Clodoaldo's family had spoken to Americo and weren't reassured that he would represent all his clients equally. They convinced Clodoaldo to drop Americo and take his chances with a public defender. So two days before the trial, that's exactly what he did. When Rifron and Clodoaldo's trial began on the morning of December 10, 2005, both men were represented by public defender Marilda Cantal. Rifron told the court, "'Americo wanted me to take all the blame and free the others so that only I would go to jail with all the blame, as if I caused all of this. I told them I'm not going to do this. I didn't come to lie.'" On the stand, both gunmen were firm in insisting that Tato had ordered the killing after telling them about the money Bita would pay them. As Rifron fought back tears, he told the court that the way Dorothy died was not a fate he would wish on anyone. Finally, in December of 2005, a jury found Rifron and Clodoaldo guilty of murder. Rifron das Neves Salas was sentenced to 28 years in prison. Clodoaldo Carlos Bastista was sentenced to 17 years. This was definitely a win, but for justice to be fully served, the men who ordered Sister Dorothy's murder would also have to be convicted. It was comparatively easy to convince a jury to convict two gunmen who confessed in open court. The coming trials would be orders of magnitude more difficult. Coming up, we'll look at Tato and Bida's trials and see if justice will be served. Now, back to the story. 
In December of 2005, hired gunmen Rifron and Clodoaldo were convicted for the murder of sister Dorothy Stang. But it wasn't over yet. The men who'd ordered the murder, Tato, Bida, and Rejavaldo, still hadn't been brought to justice. Tato was next to be tried. Prosecutors' strategy was to convict the smallest players first and work their way up to the largest. They would use earlier testimony and verdicts to bolster their later trials. Tato was the middleman between the gunmen and the money men. He was the only one who could prove the conspiracy was real. But in a stunning move, Tato renounced his earlier deposition implicating Bida and Rejavaldo. In his testimony, Tato took full responsibility for the murder. Prosecutors were shocked. They believed Bida and Rejavaldo must have obtained some sort of leverage over Tato, perhaps using Tato's family. There was a real chance now that Bida and Rejavaldo wouldn't face any consequences for their part in Dorothy's murder. This prospect was terrifying to the landless farmers. After getting away with Dorothy's murder, perhaps their next act would be to raise the settlement of Esperanza and kill everyone in it. To make matters worse, President Da Silva failed to follow through on his promises to stop land seizures in Para. Under international pressure, it appeared he'd made promises he couldn't keep. Perhaps the president hoped that by the time he would be expected to follow through, the world would have moved on to another story. By the time Tato's trial began, the military had reduced the size of its forces in the area significantly. The loggers and ranchers were emboldened and reverted to their old ways. Para was slowly succumbing to its old moniker of the lawless state. It seemed Bida and Rejavaldo were destined to go free. But at the last minute, Tato, like Rifron and Clodoaldo, suddenly decided to drop Americo. Instead, he would be represented by public defender Dalza Afonso Barbosa. Perhaps Bida and Rejavaldo lost whatever leverage they had over Tato, or perhaps the killer cattleman grew a conscience at the last minute. Whatever the reason, after Tato changed lawyers, he changed his story too. He once again implicated Bida and Rejavaldo, his wealthy bosses. In May of 2006, Tato was sentenced to 12 to 30 years in prison. Thanks to his testimony, Rejavaldo and Bida would stand trial after all. Another year passed as prosecutors built their case against Rejavaldo and Bida and made their way through a maze of delaying tactics by Americo. International obsession with Dorothy's case waned in 2006, but protests in Brazil continued. Dorothy was formally recognized by the Vatican as a martyr, and some of the local people began praying to her as if she were a saint. Although Dorothy was dead and the president had failed to keep his promises to her people, her work continued to bear fruit. The 35 Christian communities she founded, all devoted to sustainable farming, continued to work the land. Members even founded new communities carrying on her practices. Dorothy paid for many children's schooling in Anapu on the condition that they return to their rural communities and use their education to help their people. Following Dorothy's death, some of the children began returning home as teachers, lawyers, and more 
carrying on Dorothy's work. Two years after Dorothy was murdered, Bida finally went to trial on May 13, 2007. Americo and his team openly bragged that they would easily exonerate Bida of all charges. Dorothy's supporters marched in the streets to demand justice. Despite their bold protest chants, most were convinced that Bida would find a way to go free. It was one thing to send two mere pistoleros to prison, and another to send two of the richest men in the region there with them. As was feared, Rifron and Clodoaldo recanted their earlier testimony. During their own trials, they'd both implicated Bida, but now both men claimed Bida wasn't involved at all. Clodoaldo went on to make the astonishing claim that he was interviewed by FBI agents, who gave him the names of the ranchers to incriminate. He claimed he was told that if he didn't cooperate, he would be extradited to the United States and would receive the death penalty. An American FBI agent, Oscar Montodo, confirmed that he and another agent did fly to Brazil and talk to Rifron and Clodoaldo. When an American citizen is murdered, the FBI is obligated to investigate. However, Agent Montodo categorically denied any conspiracy, urging the gunman to give false testimony. His only concern, he insisted, was seeing that an American citizen's killers were brought to justice. Americo turned the trial into a referendum on the United States' supposed corruption, manipulation, and interference in Brazilian politics. Dorothy's killers were already in prison, Americo said. Convicting the two wealthy ranchers would put two innocent men behind bars, which, he argued, would serve only the interests of the United States, not the Brazilian people. The central question in this trial became, was Dorothy to be viewed as an individual nun, the victim of a tragic murder, or should she be seen first and foremost for her role in shaping international politics? If the jury saw Dorothy as a representative of the United States and believed she was working to destabilize Brazil, they might acquit Bida and Rejavaldo. But if they could be made to see the Dorothy her people knew, the simple woman tending her flower garden and working alongside poor farmers, surely they would hold her killers accountable. The state of Para's prosecutor made a simple but powerful closing statement. Sister Dorothy wasn't a citizen of America. Sister Dorothy wasn't a citizen of Brazil. Sister Dorothy was a citizen of the world. Her death was, therefore, not a crime against the interests of the United States, but a crime against all of humanity. This trial was about justice, not global politics. Dorothy's supporters in the court gallery erupted with joyous applause. On May 15, 2007, Bida was convicted of conspiring to murder Sister Dorothy Stang. He was sentenced to 30 years in prison. After more than two years of preparation, it took just two days in court to put Bida behind bars. Dorothy's supporters sang and danced in the streets. It was a rare victory for the landless against the landed, the poor against the rich, and the majority against a violent, oligarchical minority. It would take a long time for the people to win their fourth and final victory against Dorothy's assassins, but Rejavaldo, too, was eventually found guilty in May of 2010, more than five years after Dorothy died. 
If you could ask Dorothy, though, she would worry less about the fates of her killers and more about the fates of the landless settlers, whom she called her people. Sister Dorothy was famous and beloved in Brazil when she died, but despite her many accolades, she may not have been as effective in life as she hoped to be. Padre Nelo, an Italian priest who met Dorothy in 1968, believed the ranchers didn't have to kill her. If they'd just been patient, Dorothy would have failed. Nelo's theory certainly fits with past patterns in Brazil. Previous attempts at land reform were always quickly reverted. Over time, land ownership only became more concentrated in the hands of the wealthy few. He doubted Dorothy's settlements for rural farmers would have worked in the long run either. But despite this, Padre Nelo believed Dorothy won in the end. Her death made the people even more committed to the success of settlements like Esperanza. Dorothy's vision for the Amazon became a force of nature in and of itself. As for Dorothy's environmental goals, there's evidence that her death brought about remarkable progress. While other countries in the Amazon continued their deforestation in the years after Sister Dorothy's death, the opposite trend was observed in Brazil. A sharp decline in deforestation began in 2004, the final year of Dorothy's life, and it continues to this day. If Brazil had followed the pattern of other countries, like Bolivia and Peru, millions more acres of rainforest would have been lost by now. Policy experts say that Brazil's turnaround is due to increased law enforcement, environmental protections, satellite monitoring, and protected areas. Many of these initiatives started in Para, created by President da Silva after Dorothy's death. At her funeral, a farmer shouted, Sister Dorothy, we are not burying you, we are planting you. Today, that planting bears fruit. Despite this encouraging progress, Brazil is still responsible for about 1,500,000 hectares of rainforest loss annually. There's still more work to be done. The same is true of another area Sister Dorothy cared deeply about, education. At the time of her death, Sister Dorothy had helped open 39 schools in the rainforests of Brazil. Ten years later, there are over 115 schools, with more still to open. When Sister Dorothy died, she was responsible for the founding of 35 Christian farming communities. Now, there are 85 communities, all committed to using the sustainable farming methods that Sister Dorothy developed. But it's the settlement of Esperanza, where Dorothy died, that is the most sacred to these farmers. Esperanza became a symbol to the people that the powerful business conglomerates of Brazil weren't all-powerful. Today, Esperanza is wholly owned by its subsistence farmer residents. There's a new water wheel that delivers water to the local houses. The building where Dorothy's killers hid for a short time is now a school. Unfortunately, land disputes remain common in Brazil, and Para is still central to many of these conflicts. Despite improvements in local law enforcement, many still view Para as a safe haven for criminals. The Pastoral Land Commission, the Catholic organization Dorothy helped to found, says that in the decades since Dorothy's murder, 118 people in the state of Para have been killed over land disputes. Many of these murders, like Dorothy's assassination, are carried out on the orders of mandantes, powerful people who order hits on anyone who gets in their way. 
Before Dorothy's death, prosecutors didn't even bother to charge these mandantes, knowing they'd be lucky even to convict their hired gunmen. Bida's conviction was one of the first times in the history of Para that a mandante was brought to justice. This set a powerful new precedent, and since Dorothy's death, three more mandantes have been convicted. It's hoped that this progress is only the beginning of a new, more equitable future for Brazilians. But in a country where 1% of the population still owns 47% of the land, the struggle for equality is still overwhelming. In the past decade, the United Nations, Greenpeace, Amnesty International, and the Human Rights Watch have become strong advocates of landless people's rights and sustainable development in Brazil. Dorothy's death played a key role in making Brazil a priority for these organizations by bringing to light the degree to which the Amazon had already been damaged in Para and beyond. If Sister Dorothy Stang were still alive today, there's a good chance she'd still be deep in the Amazon, fighting for the people and the forests. In death, she's been considered for canonization as a Catholic saint. Prayer cards with her picture are sold in stores. Every year, on the anniversary of Sister Dorothy's murder, a pilgrimage is made along the road she walked on the morning of February 12, 2005, to the very spot where she was killed. The place of her death is still marked with a wooden cross, painted a different color every year. Today, almost 14 years after the killing, many of the children who take part in this recreation of the sisters' funeral procession never had the chance to meet Dorothy. Yet they attend schools she built. Their parents live on land she won for them. Their food and water come from the jungle she helped to protect. They may not have known the sister, but they know why she is beloved. Sister Dorothy Stang's life and mission are best remembered in her own words. Quote, My heart screams joy, but I'm needing patience as it can't happen overnight. How to maintain hope has been a challenge. I have to be with these people. If it means my life, I want to give my life. Thanks for listening to Assassinations. We'll be back next Monday with another episode. You can find more episodes of Assassinations, as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Assassinations was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro, with production assistance by Carly Madden and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire. Assassinations is written by Joseph C. Muscat and stars Kate Leonard and Bill Thomas.